You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Genesis 49 is where we'll be. Don't stand just yet, uh, but we'll stand in just a moment to read. Genesis 49. Um, we come to this passage here this morning. This is, Gen- this is Jacob's final will and testament uh, to his sons. And we've been in this passage a couple of times already. But Jacob, or Israel is his name, God-given name. Uh, he's called his sons to himself and gathering them together as his parting words um, are about to be given. And in many ways, uh, rather than writing out a will or writing out a, tr- a, a living trust or something like that, Jacob is just... Um, orally or audibly giving them uh, these pronouncements. And many of them are prophetic in nature. It's not like Jacob is saying, okay, you get the house, uh, you get the car, you, you get my stamp collection. I mean, he's not just handing things out. He's, he's giving a prediction that God is divinely and supernaturally giving him to pronounce what is going to happen to the sons in the future, so it's, it, it yes, it connects to the individual standing there, but it also is a futuristic prophecy about what will happen to the family of that son, and and the lesson that we've heard the last couple of weeks, and it'll be a theme for the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, as well, is that our choices today affect our blessings tomorrow, and we sometimes think that our choices are in a vacuum. And that our choices today don't have a connection to the future. But someday you will stand before God by yourself. And you will be judged based upon the choices you're making today. And we must learn to connect what happens to us in the future with our choices today. And uh, what we've learned the last couple of weeks just as review is number one from Reuben. We learned that lust will keep you from becoming what God has planned you to be. Reuben was the oldest son. He had the right to receive the blessing and the birthright, but lust kept him from it. And lust cannot be overlooked by a holy God. Lust is destroying homes. It's destroying families. And if we are going to stand before God and be blessed by God, then we must fight against that daily battle of lust. Uh, The second lesson that we learned last week was that anger will also prevent God's blessings in your life. Simeon and Levi, as we heard, they could have been next in line to replace Reuben as the, the one that gets the birthright and the blessing. But they were disqualified because of their inability to control their anger. And if that doesn't describe our, our culture, I don't know what does. I woke up this morning and after... Uh, reading my Bible, I try to check some headlines and just see what's going on. And the top three headlines this morning that I saw were 10 killed in a mass shooting in Southern California at a celebration last night. Um, one of the headlines was uh, the, that a, a, a girl got killed by MS-13, the gang uh, from Mexico. A young lady was killed in a terrible way. I mean, I mean, and just headline after headline, those were the first two that I saw, I mean, the world is full of anger, isn't it? I mean, it's an angry place in which we're living. And if you buy into that mindset, you will disqualify yourself from the bulk of God's blessings for your life. 
both today in this life, but also when you stand before God. Uh, these brothers, Simeon and Levi, were angry that their sister Dinah had been defiled. So they went into the city of Shechem and they exacted revenge, not only on the young man that was guilty, but also on the whole city. They killed all the men and they took the, the women and the children captive. It was a stain on Israel and it cost Simeon and Levi their blessings. You know, anger and lust are not fun, some fun subjects to deal with, but we absolutely must talk about them because I believe they're costing people, God's people, the blessings that he wants to give us. So today we come and move to the fourth son, and you can go ahead and stand as we begin to read this. Jacob starts with the three oldest sons. We'll review those and read that as well. And he says, essentially, he kind of goes down the line, and he says, Reuben, here's why you can't receive the blessing. Simeon, here's why you can't receive the blessing. Levi, here's why you can't receive the blessing. Then he comes to number four, Judah. And I believe that Judah and the other brothers are expecting more of the same. And look what, so we'll begin reading in verse one, but when we get to Judah's part, take note about what Jacob says. Verse one, Genesis 49. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. It starts out pretty good for Reuben, but verse 4, unstable as water. Thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defiledst thou it, he went up to my couch, lust. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi, our brethren, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou in their secret, under their assembly, mine honor, but be, thou not, be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Anger. Verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. And I wonder if at this point the brothers are like, okay, here comes the but. Here comes the however. You know, oh, this, these things are good, but just wait. Here comes Judah's turn. Verse 9, Judah's a lion's whelp or a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal under the vine, and his ass's colt under the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes, his eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Now, if you didn't understand the last couple of verses, uh, we'll talk about them. But just as a summary, these are all positive things. Uh, Jacob has nothing negative to say to Judah. Basically, he says, you're going to be strong. You're going to be mighty. You're going to be blessed. The king will come from your family. 
and you'll have abundance. I mean, grapes and, and milk and everything that you need, you are going to find. And I just wonder if the whole time that Jacob is talking, if Judah's waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, he's like, okay, okay, he's saying good things, but here it comes. I just know uh, he's going to say, you know, something bad now. No, but no negatives at all. He just pronounced that Judah's family is going to reign over the rest. And, and we might, if you don't know the story, you might think, well, maybe it's because Judah was Jacob's favorite son. Uh, have you read the story? No, Jacob played favorites. We know that. His first favorite son was who? Joseph. His second next favorite son was who? Benjamin, Judah, or Jacob loved those two sons because they were Rachel's sons. I can tell you this, Judah was not necessarily his favorite son. Judah was Le Leah's son, and we know that Jacob didn't really treat Leah like he should have. So this is not because he's the favorite son. You say, well, maybe it's because Judah was a perfect child. Nope. Okay, we had a gong, gong. No, he's not the perfect child. If you read his story, and we're going to talk about some of the mistakes that he made, we're going to find out he was not perfect. And actually, there is more about his mistakes than any of the other son's mistakes in this whole account of, of Genesis. Listen, uh, what I hope to see then is the difference between Judah and his brothers. What made the difference? And the title this morning is this, Get Off the Shelf. Yeah, I was expecting some, oh, no. Like, man, that's okay, that's a letdown. No, here's the idea. How to move from a blush-worthy past to a blessed future. And it's a similar message to one I preached before, but a little different. We'll see it play out differently. I just want to pray and ask God to bless our time together. It's time to get off the shelf. It's time for you to get off the shelf this morning. Father, please help us. I pray that you bless the reading of your word and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We all love a good redemption story, don't we? I mean, they make the best stories, a redemption story. And by that, I mean somebody with a checkered past, overcoming it and turning their life around and into something positive. I imagine we've got some redemption stories in this room this morning. Someone who's made a mistake, who failed miserably, or who overcame a lot to turn it around and do something big and special I mean, I think, when I think redemption stories, I think of a story like the book Unbroken about Louis Zamperini. And maybe you've read that book. I have. His, his plane crashed in the Pacific during World War II. And he spent two years um, as a prisoner of war in the Japanese war camps. And he was tormented by a prison guard nicknamed the Bird. And uh, once he was released at the end of the war, he struggled with bitterness. He couldn't forgive those who had wronged him and tormented him in those camps. And uh, he got into alcoholism and, and really struggled with his life um, until one day somebody invited him to a Billy Graham crusade. And he went and heard Billy Graham preach. And the, and, and, the, and the story goes that he received Jesus Christ as his savior at a Billy Graham crusade. We don't necessarily agree with everything that Billy Graham taught, but there's no doubt that Billy Graham made a difference in eternity. And I'm thankful for men that did preach and, and did have a, a heart for souls like that. So in that, because of that, then Louis Zamperini gained victory over, free, over bitterness. He gained victory over alcoholism. It turned his life around and he was able to turn his life into something positive because of Jesus Christ. 
And the Bible is full of redemption stories, isn't it? I mean, all the great characters like Abraham had his major failures in Egypt and lacking faith at times, and yet God made him the father of Israel. I think about Jacob. I mean, failure after failure after failure. And yet here at the end of his life, we see him having, uh, having eyes of faith and being a man of faith. I think about Moses. Moses had failures for 40 years. He, well, after he tried to kill somebody, an Egyptian, and, and deliver Israel and his strength, God sent him to the backside of the desert for 40 years. And yet 40 years later, God brought him back and used him to bring Israel out of bondage. It's a redemption story. I think about David, King David, who on the rooftop looked down and lusted after Bathsheba and took her uh, into, unto himself and lay with her and, and she was pregnant with his child. So he kills her husband and, and, and just was a mess in Israel and God judged the nation because of it. And yet David was the greatest king that ever lived because it's a redemption story that God can forgive us and he can turn our lives around. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? I'm thankful for Peter and his redemption story, that failure after failure and mistake after mistake. And listen, I don't know that Peter was any worse than any of us. It's just that all of his mistakes have been preserved for us for a couple thousand years. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if your mistakes were written down for everybody to see? I mean, I'd have a lot more than Peter. And yet Peter, when he preached on the day of Pentecost, it was a redemption story. I'm thankful for the Apostle Paul and how when he was Saul, that, I mean, he was killing Christians and, and taking them from their homes and throwing them into prison. And yet when God met him on the road to Damascus and turned his life around, it's a redemption story that just a few years later, Paul is preaching the gospel and seeing souls saved. And he's the greatest missionary that's ever lived, the Apostle Paul. Listen, only God can turn something so bad into something so good. Unfortunately for Jacob's three oldest sons, it seems that they got the first part down, the failure, but they missed the second part, the redemption. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi had fatal flaws, and it disqualified them. They never overcame them. But here's Judah. He had his own fatal flaws. Before we think he was perfect, we know his story. And you know, back in Genesis 37, in that moment where the brothers were so jealous of Joseph that they said, let's uh, kill him. And, and Judah's the one that said, well, let's just sell him as a slave. I'm not sure which one is more cruel. I mean, it might be easier just to put him out of his misery than to sell him as a slave. And who knows what happens to him over the next few years. But so Judah said, no, let's sell him. And, and let's sell them for some money so that each of us can get two pieces of silver. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. That's the, that's the man Judah was. It's a fa that's a failure. Then that very next chapter, then Judah, he left his home and went and hung out with some Canaanites and married a Canaanite woman. And he consciously left his family uh, and aligned himself with pagans. This is God's family. And listen, and just pay attention. I want to give you the background so that you can get the idea of the kind of man that Judah was before we read about him in Genesis 49. This was a, he had a disqualifying choice, it seems, back in Genesis 38 when he said, I don't need somebody that God approves of. I'm going to go marry somebody of the pagans in the land because that's what I want. 
And he purposely said, I'll forfeit the blessings of God. I don't need God's blessings. I want to live my own life. He marries this lady, uh, a Dulamite lady. He and his wife have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And Ur and Onan were so wicked that when they grew up and got married themselves, God killed them because of their wickedness. Uh, there was a, a widow left behind because of their deaths. Her name was Tamar, and that's Judah. So remember, that's Judah's daughter-in-law. His son Ur had a wife, Tamar. God took his life because of his wickedness. And then Tamar was given to the next son because culturally that was what would happen with the widow. Is that we'd go to the next son. And then that son did wickedly and God took his life. So Tamar's left behind, Judah's own daughter-in-law. Judah says to her, I don't want you to remain a, a widow. And, and, and so he says, I will give you my youngest son, Sheila, I'll give you my youngest son when he's old enough to get married. So Sheila grows up, and guess what? Judah goes back on his word. He's like, this, this girl's already cost me two of my sons. I'm not going to give my third son to her. He goes back on his word, and Tamar is left a widow. Well, uh, some events happen, and Judah's own wife dies. He goes to Timnath uh, to, to be with some people he knows there. And on his way, his daughter-in-law, uh, Tamar, she realizes he's coming. So she dresses herself up, disguises herself as a harlot, as a woman of the night. And when, and when Judah comes her way, she beckons to him and tempts him and says, come lie with me. And guess what? He does. Never realizing it, it's, it's his own daughter-in-law. She keeps herself hidden. And in the process of that, he gives her some of, his, uh, some of his personal belongings, and then he leaves. He comes back, and she's gone. He's like, Where was the, where's the harlot? They said, we haven't seen a harlot here. We don't know what you're talking about. So he moves on and goes about living his life. A while later, Judah hears that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who he still thinks is a widow, he, she is a widow, he hears that she's pregnant. You know what he says? Let her be burnt. Let's get her. Go get her. She's played the harlot. So they bring her, and, she, and Tamar says, okay. Um, he says, what, are you, what have you done? And she says, well, let me just show you. The person, the man who owns these items, this is the one who's the father. And guess what? She pulls out his signet, which is like a ring, and it has his mark on it. It's obviously his. He's got a staff and some other things that are obviously his. And in that moment, Judah recognizes that he's the one that made the mistake. It's his failure. And he says, she's been more righteous than I. And she, he, she, he knows that he's messed up. I went back on my word. And I feel, you know, at that point, it seems like he felt bad for what he did. But he couldn't really change it. Another failure. I mean, failure after failure and not small things. I mean, he has a whole chapter dedicated to his failures. She bears twins, Pharaohs and Zira, but it's a blushworthy moment for him in Israel. That's his past, folks. That's the kind of man that Judah used to be. So we fast forward then 30 years to this moment in Jacob's at Jacob's bedside. Reuben has just been given a pronouncement by his father that he's disqualified because of lust. And, and that his lust will cost him the blessing that's reserved for the oldest son. He defiled one of his father's wives or concubines in a search for lust and power. Failure. 
Simeon and Levi, they, they get their turn. And Jacob says, because of your anger, you are disqualified. You can't receive the blessing. You can't receive the birthright. You went and wiped out a village and killed all the men, took the women and children captive. You are disqualified. Failure. So now put yourself in the room. You've just heard about Reuben and his failures. You've just heard about Simeon and Levi and his failures. And as one of the younger brothers, you're thinking, well, if they got disqualified for their actions, just wait till Judah's turn. Jacob turns his eyes toward Judah. Now he's blind, so we're not sure if he looked right at him. I don't know. In his general vicinity, he looks toward Judah and everyone's like, oh boy, here we go. He looks at Judah and he starts speaking. The brothers exchange quick glances because they think Judah's about to get it. They know the skeletons in Judah's closet. And if Reuben was disqualified, if Simeon and Levi are disqualified, the hammer's about to drop on Judah. And then Jacob speaks in verse 8. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. So what he's saying here is Judah? I mean, the brother's like, Judah's going to be the dominant tribe in Israel? Is that what he just said? I mean, that's what Jacob says. And the rest of the family is like, what, are the, what? what did he say? He says the, the rest of the family, the, the Israel is going to praise you, Judah. Your hand will be on your enemy's neck. The other tribes are going to bow down to you. Judah, you will become the dominant tribe. And the brothers are like, Judah? Verse 9. Judah's a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? See, what he says is, Judah, Judah, you're going to be like a, a lion in your courage and your strength. And he gives three pictures of a lion. He says there's a whelp or a young lion. You're like a young lion after you've eaten your prey and you stand up and you're confident. You're like, yes, that's me. I just did that right there. That's the idea. He says, you're like the crouching lion about to pounce on your prey. That's what Judah's like. He says, you're like the old lion, that confident old leader of the pack, if you will. Nobody messes with that lion. That's who you are going to be. Judah and the brothers again. What? Judah? Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So what he's saying here is this is a picture of the Messiah. He, he's saying uh, the scepter, it's a sign of the, of the king. And Judah, you're going to rise to the top. And it won't be for a few hundred years, about 600 years before David actually is chosen to be the king. But then after David, it will be Judah that reigns. And until about a thousand years after David, then Jesus Christ is going to come. And guess what we're going to call him? The lion of the tribe of, of Judah. He says the name Shiloh, it can mean a couple of different things. He says until Shiloh come is what he says. And, and, and it's universally accepted that Jacob is referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it can mean two things. It either means he to whom or it can mean he who will bring peace. 
So whatever the interpretation is, the, uh, the idea is that one day the one that really rules, that really deserves the throne and will rule on it forever, he's going to rise up. And Judah, he's going to come from your family, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, he to whom the throne belongs, Judah, that's going to come from your family. He's going to bring peace to the earth. He's the only one that can reconcile a holy God and sinful men. He's going to bring those two together and allow for peace to take place in people's lives. People can be at rest when Shiloh comes. I mean, this is, this is amazing. I mean, about 1,600 years before Christ was ever born, Jacob is talking about Jesus Christ in Genesis 49. And this is one of over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus Christ was going to fulfill. Listen, folks, Jesus Christ is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ did come offering salvation. He is the one that prophets foretold. He did rise from the dead. And there is evidence all through the Old Testament that he fulfilled those prophecies. And I'm telling you that this morning because if you've never received him as your savior, it's not blind faith. You have a Bible full of prophecies and truth telling us that Jesus Christ is the same Messiah that God referred to in Genesis 3, that Jacob refers to here in Genesis 49. This is Jesus Christ. He's all through the Bible. He's all through the Old Testament. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not blind faith. You have evidence to support that he is who he says he was. Verse 11. Binding his foal unto the vine and his asses cold unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. And we could go into the details. The idea here is though there's just going to be an abundance. When the Messiah comes... There's all the, grape, all the grapes you can eat, all the grape juice you can drink. I mean, the resources, the, the crops, the food, it's abundant. When the Messiah comes and establishes his kingdom, here's the thing. No one will be left wanting. The presence of Christ will bring the blessings of Christ. Okay, so that's the background. You say, well, that was a lot. Well, there's a lot of promises here. Trust me, we could spend a lot more time on these promises. But let me just review them before I get to the point today. These four truths are given to Jacob, to Judah. You're going to be the dominant tribe, the king. You're going to be lion-like in your courage and your strength. Christ will come from your family. And through Judah, through you, the Messiah will bring joy and peace and prosperity. I mean, those are some pretty amazing promises, aren't they? Wow, you might think, man, I wish, I wish I had some promises like that. I wish I had prophecies like that. But I just want to remind you who they're made to. They're made to Judah. And Judah's Mr. Failure. I mean, Judah, this guy, his spiritual rap sheet is a mile long. This is the son whose mistakes are as bad as anyone else's. He gets more runtime, if you will, in Genesis with all of his failures than any of the brothers or all the brothers combined. He gets a whole chapter in Genesis 38 about his mistakes with, with, the, with his son with daughter-in-law. Understand, this is, so his brothers are like, this is the guy? He gets the blessing? I mean, Jesus Christ, the Messiah... 
he's going to come through his family. I mean, yeah, Jacob, I, you know, they might be like, yeah, it's clear Jacob can't see. I mean, he's getting old. Uh, he's not thinking clearly. And, and uh, they don't get it. I imagine they don't get it. I, and, and they're thinking, and you're thinking, if today's choices affect tomorrow's blessings, how is Judah the guy? I mean, he should be disqualified. And the next guy in line, the next son is Zebulun. And Zebulun, we don't know of anything really negative about Zeb. Zebulun's probably like, wait a second. I, don't have, I have no red in my ledger. I don't owe anybody any debts. I haven't done anything wrong. I mean, I've been in the background. I've done nothing to disqualify myself. And he's probably thinking, Reuben disqualified, Simeon disqualified, Levi disqualified, Judah should be disqualified. Guess who's next? And Zebulun's probably like, this is going to be good. Well, no, that's not what God decides. That's not what Jacob says. I mean, the brothers are scratching their heads. In some ways, I'm scratching my head. And if you're awake this morning, may, I hope you're scratching your head too. You know, it's important that we understand, though, how God works with sinners. See, the first category of people is Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. They made serious mistakes, failures, and they were set aside for it. They missed out on the blessings. You might could say this, they got shelved. You know, that happens sometimes. And, you know, when something is no longer useful, what happens? Well, we shelve it. I don't know about you, but I probably have too many broken things in my house that I should have thrown away a long time ago. But I just kind of put it up on the shelf and think, I don't know why, think, well, I might use it again someday. It's broken. Throw it away. What am I doing? I mean, just recently... Um, our, we have a snowblower, older snowblower, and, you know, old trusty did his time, and it helped us. So we get, we're giving it, Pastor Spencer left it for us, and I'm thankful for that. I mean, for it, we used it. But old trusty started becoming less trustworthy lately. <laughs> and, and it would do okay until you had more than, like, I don't know, three or four inches of snow, and then every time you try to get into, a, a, you know, some snow, it would just die. So I'd be out there starting it like 50 times every time I go out. I, I, mean, I know I should just use a shovel. By the time I do all this 100 times, I should have just shoveled it, right? My neighbors are probably laughing at me, recording me over and over. Like this guy. So I was telling somebody about it, uh, you know, men's prayer meeting, and just because a snowblower has been handy this winter. And... We went out of town for a few days. When we got back, I mean, I don't know who it was. I just want to say thank you. Somebody graciously bought us a, a snowblower. And I, I mean, I was just blessed and humbled by it. Um, and guess what? We've already been able to use it a lot, okay? But, but the first day I got the snowblower, I went out and used it, cleared off the mailbox, because apparently the mail, the mail wasn't going to be delivered the rest of the winter until we cleared out our mailboxes. <laughs> We were gone for a week and our neighbors didn't do it. So I'm like, love works. Okay, so, so guess what I haven't pulled out one time since I got the, the new snowblower? Old trusty. He'll soon be old rusty. But see, you know why? Because I shelved old rusty. I, I put him aside and, and I'm not planning to use him again. And if you want to 
come and service it and take it and try to get it going, and you can. That'd be fine with me. I mean, but I'm not going to use it because it's been shelved. And that's okay for snowblowers. And it's okay for stuff that breaks. But it's a tragedy when it happens to people. See, Israel had to shelve his three oldest sons. He had to put them aside because of their failures. But it wasn't their failures that shelved them. And you say, well, now you're kind of contradicting yourself. No, listen to me. It wasn't the failures that shelved them. Because Judah had failures too. See, he obviously wasn't set aside. So he was useful and he was blessed and he was commended. So what was the difference between Judah and his brothers over here? Well, I believe it's clear if you know the story that somewhere along the way, Judah became aware of just the kind of guy he really was. Turn over to Genesis 44 and, and we'll read some verses there in just a minute. See, this is the account, if you will remember, of Jacob's, uh, of Joseph's men planting that silver cup in Benjamin's pack. Remember this? They were ready to go back to, to Canaan and they had come to Joseph for food. They still didn't know it was Joseph, but Joseph wanted to test the brothers. So he takes his silver cup and he puts it in Benjamin's pack. They head back to go to Canaan and then Joseph sends his men to track them down and catch up with them. And they say, one of you stole our master's cup. And they said, we haven't stolen your cup. So they said, feel free to look. They go looking through all of their packs and they find it in Benjamin, the youngest son. They find it in his pack. So the test is from Joseph, are they going to treat Benjamin like they treated me and just leave me hanging, leave Benjamin hanging? So the brothers, when they find out that it's in Benjamin's pack, they rend their clothes and they get down and mourn and grieve. And then they turn around and with Benjamin, they go right back to Joseph's house. They don't abandon their little brother, which is a, a good sign of maturity and growth on behalf, on behalf of these brothers. And they go in and they think jo Benjamin is going to, um, you know, they think Benjamin's going to be arrested or, or taken as a slave. And, and listen, they, they could have cut and run. They could have said, Benjamin, you made your own bed. Now sleep in it. That's what they did to Joseph years before. They just left him hanging all by himself. And they went off and left him there by himself. But remember who steps up. When Benjamin's life is on the line. It's not Reuben. It's not Simeon. It's not Levi. It's Judah. And look at verse 16. Look what he says to Joseph. And Judah said, what shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak of? Or how shall we clear ourselves? Here's the phrase, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. He says, behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. He comes to the realization, and I don't believe he's just talking about in that moment. I believe that he's talking about their life of sin. And he says, God hath found us out. We are wicked. We are sinners. We can't get by. God has seen us. He knows the quality of character that we have. And we have finally been found out. And all of our wrongdoing has caught up to us. 
He goes on down in verse 33, and look what he says to Joseph again. After an amazing speech of intercession, he says, Now therefore, I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman, to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. He comes and says, listen, I will be a slave. I will be the, the servant. Uh, I will give myself to you so that my brother can go free. Listen, what we see here is a major change in Judah's heart. Somewhere along the way, he acknowledged who he was before God. And God found out his iniquity. Judah became aware of his sinfulness. He became aware of his own wickedness. And as he bowed in humility before Joseph, his repentant heart spoke and said, I'm a man of iniquity. I deserve to be a slave. I am nothing. I'm no good. And God sees me for who I am. Folks, what we see is this. When we turn to God in repentance, the Lord blesses us in spite of our past. When we turn to God in repentance, the Lord blesses us in spite of our past. Remember who this was written for? Moses wrote this for the children of Israel walking to Egypt and people that made countless mistakes, people that did terrible things before God. But Moses included this account. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He included this account for the children of Israel because he wanted them to know it's not the mistakes that you make that determine your blessing. It's your repentance for those mistakes that makes the difference. It's not your mistakes that determine your blessing. It's your repentance for those mistakes that makes the difference. It's your response to the mistakes that make the difference. Listen, I'm sure when Judah messed up in Genesis 38, everyone was like shelved. He's done. But at the point that he turned to God in repentance... God reached up, took him off the shelf, set him back down beside him, and said, I want to bless your life. I have such good things in store for you. I have incredible blessings for you. Some of the greatest blessings that have ever been promised to any man, anywhere, at any time, were given to a man that one point in his life was on the shelf. Here's the message for us. Sin puts you on the shelf, but repentance takes you off. Sin puts you on the shelf, but repentance takes you off. Listen, your mistakes don't define you. Your response to them does. And for some of us this morning, it's time to be repentant about your actions. And I, we talked about repentance a few months ago, but I just want to remind you, repentance starts when you take responsibility for your actions. Don't shift the blame. Don't point your fingers. Don't say it's somebody else's fault. Don't say it's how I was raised. Don't say, well, you know, this is just who I am. No, say I'm a sinner. I'm guilty before God. God sees my sin. He knows who I am. Just like Judas said and say, I'm the guilty one. Take responsibility for your actions. Number two, be humble. I mean, Judah bowed himself before Joseph. Judah had no pride. He wasn't trying to prove anything. He knew he was guilty. And if you want to be repentant, you cannot be repentant with pride. 
So take responsibility for your actions. Be, re- be humble. And three, accept the consequences, whatever they are. I did the crime. I do the time. I'm the guilty one. I deserve whatever's coming. Don't let everybody else suffer for my sake. I will bear the blame. Listen, that is repentance. And I'm telling you this morning, if you will have the spirit of repentance before God and before men and before others, God will take you off the shelf. You don't have to stay there. Here's the three truths about the shelf. We put ourselves on the shelf. We put ourselves up there. And, and Timmy, can I use you real quick here? Are you nimble? Are you nimble? Flexible? Athletic? Okay, here we go. Ready? I can't believe he doesn't know what nimble. Jack, be nimble. Come on, Brother Spillman. Teach him the poems. Okay, so, so let's just say that right here, this right here on the platform, this is where God is and where all of God's blessings exist. But somewhere along the way, Timmy makes some mistakes, okay? And, I mean, I don't, I don't think Timmy makes a lot of mistakes. I just, if he's like my kids, I mean, he's not perfect. I know that. He's a good kid, though, okay? This is just an example. But let's say Timmy makes some real big mistakes. He really messes up, and he blows it big time. Failure, okay? Just like Judah. And so Timmy, then, can you just then walk up to that back chair and then step up onto the baptistry without knocking the decorations off, if you can. He can. There he goes. Okay, so here's, here's Tim. Tim. Timothy, Timotheus, whatever his Greek name is. Timothy is on the shelf. Okay, and remember, this is the arena of God's blessings. And this is, and, and this is the arena where, where God has, uh, he wants us all to be. He wants us down here, and he, this is where we're supposed to be. But, but Tim has made mistakes, failures, and he's the one that put himself on the shelf. Did you notice when it, when it came to it, I didn't take Timmy up there and throw him up there. He went up there on his own accord, and that's how we are too. God doesn't put us on the shelf. We put ourselves on the shelf. It's not God's choice. Uh, God wants us to be down here. Actually, this is where God intended for us to be. Kind of like the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve, he put them in the place where they could be blessed. He didn't make them make the choice to sin. They made the choice themselves. They chose to put themselves on the shelf. That's the first truth about the shelf. The second is this. God would rather us be down here than shelved. God would rather you be used than shelved. God would rather you be blessed than shelved. God would rather you be making a difference, as we heard in men's prayer meeting from Brother Ken. God would rather you be making an impact on people's lives than be on the shelf. But we put ourselves on the shelves, and God would rather us be down here. But listen, here's the thing. Here's the great truth about the shelf, is the shelf doesn't have to be permanent. In other words, Timmy doesn't have to stay up there. It's very often that people stay on the shelf because they don't see how God can use them again. But God is saying, trust me, I created the entire universe. Don't you think that I have enough grace to take you from shelved to used? 
to take you from shelved to blessed, to take you from shelved to difference making. I have that ability, God says. We're often on the shelf longer than we should be because we think that God's ability to take us off the shelf and forgive us and use us again is limited. We assume he's like us. So we write people off and we don't give second chances, but that's not the way that God works. It doesn't matter who you are. Ask Rahab the harlot. It doesn't matter what you've done. Ask King David. And it doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. Ask Peter. It doesn't matter how long you've been on the shelf. Ask Moses after 40 years in the desert. No, it doesn't matter how high on the shelf you are because God's arms are very long. Just ask the Apostle Paul. See, the difference between Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah was a heart of humble repentance. Judah came to a point where he said, I don't want to be on the shelf anymore. Brother Chad, could you come up here real quick? Remember, this is the place where blessings are. This is the place that God wants you to be. And if you're on the shelf, you're there of your own choosing. But God doesn't want you there. He wants you here. And the shelf doesn't have to be permanent. But here's the thing. You don't get off the shelf until you come to the end of yourself and repent of your decisions and choices and ask God to take you down. So Tim, would you just, just however you want to say it, tell Brother Chad, he's going to represent the Lord, say, I'm tired of being on the shelf. God, can you come take me down? And then you just need to go take him down. But you got to ask first. Just imagine this is your life. <laughs> there it is. I mean, that's it, right? Let's give me a hand. Good job. That's some good strength. Yeah, thank you. Now, listen. Listen, yeah, I mean, that was pretty impressive. You can sit, Brother Chad. I, I don't want to mess with him now. No, listen, that's a picture of our lives, folks. Is that when we're on the shelf, we're there because we chose. But God doesn't want to keep us there. And the shelf doesn't have to be permanent. And if we will come to the end of ourselves and repent of our sins and our choices, there's, listen, there's nobody God can't reach on the shelf. He's more than, thank you, he's more than capable. His arms are long enough. It doesn't matter how many layers of dust are on your life. His grace is more than enough to take you off a shelf. And you just need to repent, come to the end of yourself, and recognize that I won't be blessed until I ask God to help me. Listen, God has a plan, and he, his plan includes you. But just like Judah your, God's plan for you starts with Jesus Christ. And you cannot be blessed until you include Jesus Christ in your life. He wants to save you this morning, but you've got to start with Jesus. He wants to bless your life, Christian, but you've got to say, you know what, I'm tired of being unusable up here on the shelf. God, please come take me down. 
I got a friend in, in uh, Oklahoma. His name is uh, Mike Scott. And Michael is, he's awesome. He's an African-American man raised in Houston. He was raised on the streets and, you know, pretty rough life and wanted to get out of it and away from it. So he joined the military and was stationed in Hawaii. And as a young man, you know, he was, things were going well. One day, though, just randomly out of the blue, um, a car, some cars started following him while he was driving there in Hawaii, stationed there. And these cars followed him, and he wasn't sure what was going on, and there was some kind of tension or conflict. But um, he eventually pulled over, and when he did, these guys got out of the car and started coming at him in his car. And he panicked, and he had a pistol in his vehicle. And as they approached his car, he pointed the gun out of the window and pulled the trigger and shot one of the young men that was coming toward him and killed him right there in the street. And he was in the military, of course, um, but, but he was arrested, put into jail, put into prison. And at that point, you know, we would all look at Mike and say, shelved. If there was any way that Mike could be used, it's over now. So he's in prison. While he's in prison, I mean, right away in prison, he gets his hands on some literature, which, by the way, the brother Doug Henricks is in the prison ministry. It's worth it to go reach those guys in prison. Yes. He got his hands on some literature, started reading, and he got saved in prison. Real, I mean, truly born again. While he was in prison, he got on fire for the Lord. He started working on his degree, and over the course of time, he spent 16 years in prison total for murder, but he, he, over the course of time, he got his four-year bachelor's degree in biblical studies while he was in prison, got his degree. And while he was in prison, he got moved back to the States, and, uh, and he was in a prison in, in Oklahoma, and the church in Stillwater that we were a part of would go into the prison and have a prison ministry, and there was a young lady that went into the prison. She would help with the music uh, during the services and things, she met Mike. They started talking. Can you imagine the day she came back to church and said, I met a guy in prison. He's great. We like each other. We're like, nah, I don't think so. But once, once we met him, we're like, oh, okay. We see it now. He was on fire for God. Got out of prison. They got married, moved to Stillwater, started going to the church, just plugged in. God on fire, both of them together for the Lord serving God. Till eventually, one day, Brother, Brother Samuel's dad, Brother Hardy, said, we've got a need on the staff for outreach and college director. Brother Mike, would you be interested in that? And Michael said, yeah, absolutely. Came on staff. And he's been on staff now there for four or five years, just on fire, making a difference, reaching the community, doing big things for God. And you know what? Here's the thing. Way back when, we would have looked at Mike and said, shelved. Failure. There's no way he can ever be used in a big way. 
And now we look because Michael came to the end of himself and recognized I am nobody, I'm a sinner. And if God doesn't intervene in my life, I've got no hope to make a difference or be usable. He came to the end of himself. He repented of his sin. He looked to Jesus Christ. Christ saved him and changed him and he's using him. And I'm telling you, it's a redemption story like few I've ever seen before. And listen, it may be dusty up on that shelf, but God's grace is greater. And you may be high up on that shelf, but God's arms are long. And you might be comfortable on that shelf, but you won't find God's blessings there. It's time to be responsible. It's time to be humble. Accept your consequences, but believe that God can take you off the shelf and use you what awaits then? What awaits the person that takes the steps necessary to get off the shelf? Oh, not much. Just the eternal blessings of an almighty God. Listen, God wants to bless you. He wants to give you contentment. He wants to give you joy. He wants to use you within his grand plans. He's got a place for you. But you have to, from the shelf you got to say, God, I'm tired of being up here. I'm tired of being unused. I'm tired of not making a difference. I'm tired of missing out on all the blessings you have for me. Can you come get me off this shelf? And he wants to this morning. He will. If you're not saved today, all you have to do is ask God to get you off the shelf. And if you're a Christian but you've been shelved because of your mistakes, listen, God can overcome those If he can create the universe, if he can save your soul, he can forgive you and make you usable again. You just have to want to get off the shelf. Let's stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Thank you for your attention today. I don't know about you. I I, I wouldn't want to stay on the shelf. I I don't want to miss out on the blessings. I don't want to miss out on all that God has for me. I've been, I feel like I've been shelved before. And yet, all it took was a heart of humility and repentance and God brought me down. He can do that for you today. If you don't know that you're saved, today's the day to ask God to take you off the shelf. And if you're a Christian and you think I've made too many mistakes, God can't use me. Listen, if he can bless Judah, he can bless you. He wants to. It just depends on if you are willing to have a heart of humble repentance before God. Father, we pray that you'd have your will and way. Speak to us today. Help us to uh, respond with humility and respond in the right way. And God, if we're shelved, I pray that you would just reach up this morning and take some people off the shelf, put us back into the place of blessing and usefulness. God, have your will and way work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.